good to see you today. Uh, as, as Pastor Derek and Pastor Mitch mentioned, we're doing Pray and Go, and, and uh, I did it uh, this week. I did five homes in my neighborhood, and, and uh, it was awesome. It was really good. Nothing earth-shattering happened um, except the earth-shattering prayers that I prayed uh, for my neighbors. I, I didn't see a single uh, neighbor at that time, but uh, it was just really good to walk my neighborhood and to kind of walk it prayerfully and to be thinking about the neighbors and the relationships that I have with them and and just praying for God's blessing over their life. So, uh, so I'm going to keep doing it, and uh, I want to encourage you to join us uh, as, we, as we do this. 4,000 homes is a lot of homes, so if you guys don't help me, I'm going to get really busy here during the month of October. So, uh, so stop by and pick up your door hangers on the way out. Everybody get it? Well, great. Um, well, I, um, I need to turn to some more serious news. Uh, this morning. I, I don't know if you've heard the tragic news, but um, uh, the Pillsbury Doughboy uh, has passed away. And uh, I want to take a minute and I want to read to you his obituary um, just published today. So um, it goes like this. I think uh, veteran Pillsbury spokesperson Poppin' Fresh died yesterday of a serious yeast infection. Um, he was 71 Fresh was buried in one of the largest funeral ceremonies in recent years. Dozens of celebrities turned out, including the California Raisins, the Keebler Elves, Hungry Jack, Betty Crocker, and his Aunt Jemima. And so the graveside was piled high with flour uh, as his longtime friend Little Debbie delivered the eulogy, describing Fresh as a man who never knew how much he was needed. Um, Fresh rose quickly in show business, uh, but his later life had many turnovers. Um, he was not considered a very smart cookie, wasting much of his dough on half-baked schemes. Still, as a crusty old man, he was a role model for millions. Uh, Fresh is survived by his wife, Mrs. Butterworth. Uh, they have two children and a bun in the oven, and the funeral was held at 3.50 for 20 minutes. <laughs> so... I'm just glad you guys laughed. I wasn't sure where we were going with that this morning. So, uh, you know, as I read that silly thing this week, I'm, I'm reminded that uh, joy and laughter is the serious business of heaven, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's what uh, heaven is really all about. And so I think one of the biggest sins in the church today is we take ourselves way too seriously and we don't, we don't take God seriously enough. Kind of get an amen to that. So we'll go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to finish up Philippians chapter 1 today. If you're new with us this morning, we're in a church-wide study uh, called Go Together, as we've been talking about. And uh, we're in this letter to the Philippians. And as we've, as we've mentioned a number of times, Paul's writing this letter from prison in Rome. And he is literally chained to a Roman praetorian guard for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And... Um, What's interesting as you read this letter, uh, joy and contentment are uh, some of the prevalent themes that you see in this. I think the main theme of the entire letter is found in chapter 1, verse 21. It runs through the whole letter, uh, but, but it's, it's really when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and so we've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks, and I want to come back to it one more time this morning as we drill down on it a little bit um, a little bit more deeply. So, so Paul could be executed at any moment. Uh, he's awaiting 
He's awaiting trial. He's awaiting execution. He is facing an uncertain future in his life. He, he really doesn't know what the Lord has in store for him. He doesn't know uh, really what to expect. And so he's going to be standing before uh, the emperor of Rome. His name is Nero. And Tacitus uh, was a Roman historian in the first century. And he gives us a, a really clear picture of who Nero was and his leadership uh, in the Roman Empire in this time. And so it, it'll help you understand uh, the words of Paul a little bit more. Notice what Tacitus says about Emperor Nero. He says, besides being put to death, the Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. So there's a lot of Christian persecution going around uh, in the Roman Empire at that time. And so Tacitus goes on and says, they were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show and a circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity for it was felt that they, the Christians, were being destroyed not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. And so that is what, that's the context that Paul is writing this verse for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what he has in mind. That's what he's thinking about his future. And so this emperor is torturing Christians to satisfy his own wicked desires. This is the emperor that Paul is going to face. And I think what is remarkable about this letter is that even in the midst of that kind of context, the apostle Paul is unfazed by his circumstances. He's not panicking here. He is completely at peace. He, he is living triumphantly over the trials that he's facing. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't have hard days. It doesn't mean that he never got down. It just means that his, his situation never became his identity. His Lord was his identity, and that's the difference. And so we're going to read together today, verses 18 through 30, and I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, let's stand together just for the reading of the Word of God out of reverence uh, for the word of God this morning. Let's begin in verse 18. And so the apostle Paul says, yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in the Spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Every religion has to answer two basic questions. And as you might imagine, religions answer these two questions in a variety of different ways. For example, Buddhism, one of the world's largest religions, says that to live is to achieve good karma and to die is to hope for a better reincarnation. Now, karma is this belief that when you live and you do good things, then good things will happen to you. So, so for a Buddhist, to live is to, to try to live in such a way to achieve good karma. And, and then when you die, it is to hope for a better reincarnation. They, they believe that you would die and come back as someone else or something else. So you're just hoping to kind of upgrade your status on the next go around and then the next one and the next one. Islam is a little bit different because for Islam, Islam says to live is to obey Allah and to die is to enter into paradise provided that you've earned your way there, that you've got more good in your life than bad. The problem with Islam is you never know if you've gotten there. You never know in this life whether you've scored high enough on the morality chart to actually achieve paradise. Now, secularism is the most prevalent religion in in the American culture today. And secularism says, basically, to live is self and then to die is loss. Secularism says, basically, that salvation is being true to yourself. Finding the truth about who you are and then living out that truth. It's living your truth out. It's you doing you. And And then secularism basically says... That to die is to lose because so many secularists don't believe in life after death. Now, you can see how different this is from the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and then to die is gain. You see the difference there? And so what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse 21 is for him, you know, if he lives, then that's a win. If he dies, then that's a win as well. It's win-win for him. And I think that's part of why he is unfazed by his circumstances. He's free. He's more free than the people that have him captive. So what I want to do this morning is I really want to just kind of personalize this for you and for me. And I just want to throw out a couple of serious questions for you today. I don't mean to be so heavy about this, but I I, I just, my job as a pastor is to get you ready to die. Did you know that? That's my job. And, uh, you're only ready to die you, when, you, when you determine how you're going to die. Then that really opens the door to life. So let me ask you these two questions. What is your life, first of all? And then secondly, what is your death? See, if you learn how to die, you'll know how to live. And so Paul answers these questions. And you and I need to answer them as well. And he shares the answer with us. It's no secret. And uh, let's see what he says in verse, in verse 18. He says this, he says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice there. Paul is the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, and he needs the body of Christ in his life. Do you see that? He says that through your prayers, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. He is relying on the body of Christ praying for him. He is relying on the grace of God that comes when the saints have been lifting him up in prayer. And if he needs the body of Christ, how much more do you and I need the body of Christ? But he goes on to say that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, that word deliverance, it's kind of of an awkward translation. The word there really is salvation. And if you're anything like me, when I was reading through this passage, I immediately thought, okay, he's, he's thinking that he's going to be set free. He's going to get back to normal in his life. He's going to get back to ministry. He, this is all going to turn out for his deliverance. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this is going to turn out for my salvation. And so salvation in the New Testament is, is used in a number of different ways. It's used in three different tenses in the New Testament. It's used in the past tense, it's used in the present tense, and it's used in the future tense. That word salvation. And so in the past tense, it really conveys to us that we've been saved from the penalty of our sin in the past. But not only is it past tense, it's present tense. And it talks about that we've been saved from the power of sin. We're being saved by the power of sin presently. And then in the future tense, it is always talked about how we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin in the future. And so what the Apostle Paul is really talking about here is no matter what happens in my life, this is going to turn out for my salvation, past, present, and future. I'm good, guys. I'm good. And that is, that is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Now notice what he says uh, in verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. He's facing a very difficult future, an uncertain future. And his main concern and his main prayer is that he would not do anything that would tarnish the name of Christ. That's all he's concerned about. He's, he, he's probably nervous about death like you and I would be. But his main concern is I don't want to do anything that just discourages my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to do anything to tarnish the glory of God. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, whether by life or by death. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say, and this brings us really to this first question that I I want to throw out to you. And it's this, for me to live as Christ, he says. And to die is gain. So question number one, what is your life? Is it, is it self or is it Christ? That's, I mean, that's the only two choices you have, self or Christ. And so our American secular culture teaches that to live is self. To live is to put yourself first. If, if life was a solar system, if you will, then, then it's the putting of yourself in the middle of that solar system so that everybody and everything else kind of revolves around you, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations. You're the center of the universe. You're the center of the world. Everything caters to you. That's what our world tells us how we are to live. That's what our world says is life. Now, G.K. Chesterton was a writer in the 20th century, and he tells the parable about a little boy that has the magical ability of either becoming gigantic or very small. And so he chooses, like so many of us, to choose, he chooses to become gigantic, and he's so excited because he realizes that he can literally stride across the North American continent in about three minutes. That's how big he is. That's pretty big. 
And he can go up to Mount Everest and he can kick over Mount, Mount Everest like it was a, a sandcastle on the beach. And he's so excited. But after a little while, this little boy gets, or this big boy gets very bored because he has no one to play with anymore. And he's already explored the entire world. And he begins to regret his choice of making himself so big because he realizes if he had made himself small, he could spend the rest of his life exploring his backyard or his neighborhood. And he'd have plenty of things and people to play with. You see, it's our human nature, and I think this is where Chesterton was going with this, that it's our human nature to make ourselves big in our own eyes, to make ourselves look big in the eyes of other people. It's, it's our human sinful nature to kind of put ourselves in the center of the universe. And I think what really hinders us from living on mission, from being the church of Jesus Christ that's, that's, that's growing in our faith, that's, that's living on mission and, and loving each other in community, what hinders us is this thought that Jesus, Jesus is just kind of an add-on to our already complicated lives. That he's just a part of our life amidst of so many other parts happening in our life. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like Jesus is another piece of our life in the midst of so many other pieces, but we're going to stay the center of our life. And some people will say, well, you know, I like Jesus. You know, he's great. I, I want some Jesus in my life. I want a little bit of Christianity. I, I want a little bit of the church, and I want God to bless me, but I'm going to stay the center of my life. And I'll see him every, every, every time he orbits around me now church the bible has a word for this and it's called idolatry and idolatry is this is this thing where something else in our life gets more glory or more importance or uh, more weight in our eyes than god does and it's really the core sin it's, it's really the, the, the heart of what sin is. It's, it's really looking for life in something other than God. And I just want to tell you, church, Jesus does not want to be an add-on to your life. He doesn't want to be just a component. He didn't die to be a, a, a component in your life. See, Jesus is the source of life. And his goal is to give you life in himself because he is the source of all life. He is what you're looking for. The life that you're looking for. And so having Jesus and having him is really what abundant life is all about. And so when we live in this idolatry of where Jesus is just an add-on, what happens is we begin to kind of reduce Christianity down to just being a good person. That that's really the substance of our Christian life or how we view the Christian life. Is I'm just, I'm just a good person and I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay, that's what my life is. I'm just a good person. Or I'm just a religious person. And so what happens is we're living at the center and we make, we make judgments about what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And, and so what happens is we, we focus on just being a good person or just being a religious person and we miss Christ all the way through that. Because Christianity is Christ and Christianity is Christ at the center. That's what it is. And so Christ on the peripheral is really not an option. Think of it this way. Think of your life as a house. 
And so you know that uh, you, you need some remodeling done in your house. You, you need to make some changes in your house. So, so we invite Christ in to kind of upgrade the bathroom or the, to upgrade the kitchen. Uh, but we really don't want him doing anything more uh, than that. We want to keep him in check in certain areas in the reno projects. We want to call the shots. When in reality, church, listen to this. What Jesus wants is to tear the entire barn down and to make a palace. But we don't want him to do that. And so he wants to do a complete heart renovation from the inside out. And so what hinders the renovating work of the Spirit in us is our insistence that Jesus remain on the edges. That he just remains kind of kind of on the sideline and so let me just let me just ask you the question this morning what are your idols in your life today what are the things that you chase in your life right now that you think oh man if I could just get that then I would be alive then I would be alive you see what are those what are those things for you what are what are those things that you think will really give you life. You see, that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, my life is Christ because that is life. He is the source of life. All of life flows from Christ and all abundant life flows from him. You know, I was reading an illustration of this. This, was, this is from Ray Ortland. Ray's a pastor, uh, I think, in Tennessee. And, and uh, he gave the illustration. You could think of your life as as a, a boardroom, if you will. So just imagine your life, your heart, and imagine inside your heart, there's this big boardroom. There's a boardroom table, and there are b- these big leather chairs, and there's bottled water on the table, and there are these whiteboards up, and it's like a boardroom. And, and, um, and so there's a, there's a committee that sits at the table of your heart. An entire committee and, um, and you've got your social self and you've got your private self sitting at the table and you've got your work self and your financial self and your recreational self and your sexual self. You've got all of yourself. And what are, the, what are all those people doing? What's the committee doing? They're all arguing and debating amongst each other, right? They're all arguing and lobbying for their way and they never have unity and, and they, they never agree on anything. They just kind of completely you know, argue with each other all the time. And so what we do is we tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy and we got so many responsibilities when in reality we have a divided heart, don't we? Now, the question is, what do you, what do, you do with that? You can invite Jesus in to sit at the table with all the other voices. You could do that. A lot of people do it. You could give him a vote on the board. Or you can invite Jesus in and tell him to, inf- to fire the entire board. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul says when he says, for me to live is Christ. He's the one calling the shots. I have an undivided heart in this. And so what we see is that Christianity is not really just adding Jesus to, you know, to kind of inform all the other voices and all the other motivations in your life. It's, it's really letting Jesus call all the motivations in your life so what is what is your life today is it is it self or christ here's question number two look with me again at verse 21 he says this for me to live as christ 
and to die is gain. So here's question number two. What is your death? What is your death? Is your death loss or is your death gain? What is your death? For the Apostle Paul, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so our secular culture teaches us that to, you know, to live is self and to die is loss. And so when you die, you lose something and you never, you never gave, it, gave it back. You, you never get it back. But in reality, how you answer the first question will determine how you answer the second question. So how you determine life is going to totally impact how you see and how you answer how you determine death. It's going to determine how you view death. So in other words, if your life is all about being comfortable, if that's, if that's your mantra, to live is to be comfortable, then death is not going to be very good for you because death is not comfortable. And then if, if your life is all about control, if you were to say, well, for me to live is to be in control, or I can manipulate other people, I can manipulate my family and my friends, and I, I'm in control of my circumstances, or at least I'm trying to control all of my circumstances, which absolutely leads to exhaustion because you can't do it. But some people try, some people never give it up either. But if you say to live is to be in control, then well, death's not going to be very good for you. Why? Because you're not in control of your death. You don't control when and, and how, right? But what the Apostle Paul says is to, to die is gain. Why? Because of how he defines his life. He defines for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because I gain Christ. I gain him. Let me show you. He explains this in verse, in, um, <clears throat> in verse 22. He says this, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he's just kind of reflecting on his life and he's just kind of doing a kind of cost-benefit analysis here. And he's thinking, man, if I live in the flesh, if I go on living, that means fruitful labor for me. So he's going to continue in the ministry. He's going to continue discipling other people. And, that, and that, that's going to mean fruit for him or for the kingdom of God, most importantly. And then he says this, yet which shall I choose? I, I can't tell. I'm really hard-pressed between the two. And then he tells us why he's so hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. Now, he doesn't say better, right? What does he say? Far better. He says, my desire, what I really want is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better. That is far better. Now, you might say, well, of course he's going to say that. He's depressed. You know, he's, he's in prison and it stinks in prison. There are rats in prison. There's disease in prison. He, you know, he's, he's kind of down. You know, of course He's going to consider his life kind of wretched and say, you know, I'd rather die than to be in prison. I think many of us probably would say the same thing. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that at all. This is not some depressed state of escapism that he's involved in here. No, what he is saying is this. He's saying to die is gain even in the best moments of life. Even if you get the best that life can throw at you, to die is gain. Why? Because you gain, you gain Christ. You gain abundant life in Christ. You see, I think he would say it on the eve of his wedding. I think he would say this right after he's won the lottery. To die is, is gain. You see, he understands that death for a Christian is a portal to life. That's what he understands. 
He understands that, church, we're not made for this world. He understands this is not our home. He understands that, that we cannot inherit immortality until we shed the flesh. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says that flesh cannot inherit immortal life. And so, and so he understands that God has designed us not for life in this world because this world is, is, is dark and sinful and sin-cursed. This is not paradise. What he knows is that God has called us, God has redeemed us, that God has adopted us for life eternal with the Son. And so for him to die is gain because what he gains is, is true life. He knows he's just passing through. So this whole phrase, to live as self, is really part of a deception that has been here since the beginning of time. It's not really anything new. I mean, it's secularism, certainly. But it just, it's just been around even since the Garden of Eden because this is what Adam and Eve believed that led them to disobey God. They believed that they could become God they believed that God was holding out on them and they wanted to be the center of the universe. And so what happened is they, they made that dreadful choice and it separated them from God. It brought sin and it brought death in, into the world. And so the gospel of Jesus very simply is this, that Jesus came and died for our idolatry. He came and died for our selfishness. He came and died to reset the solar system the way it was created to be, where the source of life, Jesus, is the center of it all. And, and he says, you know, we're going to orbit around him. And so that's what makes the Christian invincible. That's what makes Paul say, even if you kill me, I have life eternal. Even if you take away everything that this world offers, I still have life and joy because I still have the Son. I have the presence of God living inside of me. I'm free for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What about you? What about you? Now, tradition has it that the Apostle Paul was executed. And uh, I would think that the last thing going through his mind was probably verse 21 before he was executed. They probably carried him out to the gates of Rome. Uh, he got on his knees. He laid bare his neck. They did the thing. And I guarantee that the thing that was going through his mind for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I'm sure he was a little nervous. I'm sure he was probably a little scared because we would all be scared at the big knife when that big knife is coming. But I also believe he experienced the joy of his Savior because he understood his Savior's been through what he's about to go through. And will give him the grace and the strength to walk through it triumphantly as he would do for you and me. And so I think that's why the Apostle Paul would say to die is to gain. You know, when I was in seminary, I used to, I had uh, other pastors, older pastors tell me all the time, uh, I heard this all the time, people, people would say, you know, uh, people that die with Jesus die very differently than people without Jesus. I heard that all the time. And uh, they were just like, just take my word for it, you'll see it. And you know what, after 23 years, I've seen it, there's no doubt about it. The people that die with Jesus die very differently than the people that die, uh, that die without him. There's a story of, 
about a guy named Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll lived during the 1800s. He was an intellectual. He was, um, I think he was an author and intellectual. And he would go all over the United States speaking to different groups that would listen to him speak. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And, and so he would stand up in front of groups of people in a very public place. And he would curse God in front of the entire group of people. And then he would say, if God were real, he would call out to God. He would say, God, why don't you just strike me down right now? If you're real, show us that you're real. And he put a little timer up there and he just waited and said, God, as he, as he cursed God, he would, he would call on God to strike him dead. Never did. Never did. And so he just did that time and time and time again. Well, a contemporary of Robert Ingersoll was a pastor and preacher named, by the name of D.L. Moody. There were times when Ingersoll and Moody debated one another. And Moody would go around the country and he would go around preaching and he pastored a, a church in Chicago and God just tremendously blessed uh, his his ministry. And so I don't know if it was the same day or the same week or the same month, but about the same time, Ingersoll and Moody died. They both died. And uh, it is said that when Ingersoll died, his family was so distraught at his death that they wouldn't let go of his body. Like they kept this body in, in their house. They just refused to let it go. And finally, the County Health Department had to issue an order for the body to be removed after a few days, which they, which they did. D.L. Moody was on his deathbed, and as he, was at his, as he was dying, the story is told that his kids and his family gathered around his bed. They were all very weepy. And, uh, and at a moment, Moody opened his eyes, and before he died, he, he said this. He said, soon you're going to read about in the papers, Moody is dead. Moody is dead. And he looked at his daughter and he said, don't you believe it? I'll, I'm, I'll be more alive than I am, than I've ever been in my life. You see, for D.L. Moody, death was gain because he gained Christ. Death was life because of what Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday. And I just wonder for you, how would you answer that question? What is my death? What is my life? See, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's one other verse I want to show you, and then I'm going to close with this. Look at verse 27. I love this. There's an observation that we're going to come back to time and time again, and you see it in verse 27. He says, only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. In other words, you're standing together. And then notice this phrase, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that? Now, the observation that I just want to highlight for us is, is this. And it's, it's one that I've mentioned and we're going to mention over and over again. But we, we need each other. We're better together. We, we need each other in life and in death. We're better together in life and in death. And that's what he's talking about. He's painting this picture of the Philippian Christians having one mind and one heart and one love. And they're standing together and they're striving together for the gospel. They're in community. They're loving one another as they go through this, this life. And that's the picture that, we, that he is painting here. This, this picture of striving together as the body of Christ, whether we're in life or in death. And really that, that word striving is a, 
it's a, it's a fighting term. It's a military term. And, and really the picture that you have here is when Roman soldiers fought, they fought side by side. Because there was safety in fighting side by side. There was safety in numbers. And you see this beautifully in the movie Gladiator, one of the greatest movies of all time, by the way. Um, I love that movie because, you know, the, the, the slaves that would have to fight in the Colosseum, one of them was Russell Crowe, what, what, what would they do? As they were fighting animals and other soldiers in the Colosseum for sport, these guys would have to fight together. If they didn't fight together, they were going to die. They were going down. It was just a matter of time. But what you see is they learned how to fight together. They learned how to love each other. They learned how to do community and life together. And it gave them life. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. He's saying, another way of saying it would be this way. Christianity is the ultimate team sport. And it calls for a fight. Now, how did Jesus, how did, uh, how did God fight how did he fight? Well, he fought this way. He, he loved us to death. He loved us to death. Jesus laid down his life so that you and I could have life when we die. And if you've not taken that step of trusting Jesus as your Savior, you need to take that step today. You need to put your whole trust, not in your goodness, not in your religion, but in Jesus, who died for you, who lived for you, and who rose on the third day to give you life. And you say, well, Scott, what do I need to do? And then the answer is pretty simple. You repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repenting is turning away from your sin, and believing is turning to Christ in faith. And the Bible says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, the freedom that we have that comes from you. If we have you, we have all that we need. God, we have, we have life eternal. We have the power of the Spirit. We have joy. We have peace. We have assurance that we're sons and daughters of God, that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear anything in life. Lord, because we're in you. And so I just ask that you would bring clarity to our hearts today, God, that you would bring clarity to our minds, that we would see those idols that need to be removed, that need to be torn down, that need to be repented of, and God, I pray that for, for our church, for everyone listening online, for everyone present in this room, God, you would give us grace to fire the committee in our heart and to name you CEO so that you call the shots. And Lord, in that is joy, in that is peace, in that is the presence of God. That's, that's what life is all about. And so we, we ask that you would work in us we ask you would give us grace and mercy today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.